We hope this explanation of God's Word enriches your life. To help you understand the audience for this talk, we suggest you read the context material on the About Us page. Please read also our copyright page before recording or reproducing any material from philipjensen.com. This talk was recorded at the lunchtime campus Bible study, where it was delivered for university students. In the authorised version. I frequently make that kind of quotation without any reference to what Jesus was speaking about and what Jesus meant by it. They usually make it when Christians make any assessments, any judgments of anything, on any subject at any time. As soon as they, you say something that they do not like, they will say, ah, judge not. And Jesus even teaches, see, you shall not judge. Judge not or you'll be judged. And so we are not to make any judgments, but rather be gullible fools, led astray by every wind of doctrine that may fly around. It's interesting, I read it recently in the uh, very humorous and uh, interesting book, which is the parallel volume for Tony Morford's book, uh, A Hole in a Ceiling, published by Philip Adams, called Adams vs. God. It's also a series of essays only this time by somebody who hasn't ceased being an atheist to become a Christian, this time by somebody who has died in the wall, existentialist atheist, and who is keen to attack Christianity or any form of religion that's available to him. Very entertaining, very witty and very funny. But he starts off in his introduction and it follows throughout the book that he keeps saying, I'm not dogmatic like the Christians, you see. I'm he's every bit as dogmatic, one of those dogmatic writers at all, but you're not allowed to be dogmatic in this world. At the moment, you see, everyone's got to be open-minded and tolerant and free. He's tolerant of everybody. That's why he writes a book against people who hold a particular viewpoint he disagrees with. Makes his living out of shooting funny ma remarks at them, you see. But he's tolerant of them. Huh? That's, that's, he's got to be tolerant of them. That's how he makes his living. If they all went away. If his book ever had effect, he'd be out of a job. So, so he's very tolerant of them, you see. And the thing he hates about them most is that they keep on making judgments about other people which is very interesting because the whole of his book is a judgment about other people. That's the one thing you're not allowed to do if you're religious is make judgments. Right? And they are found to be wanting in that area. I've often had people say to me that I don't like coming to that church or this church or I don't go to that church because the people there are so judgmental. It's a very interesting judgment, isn't it? There is the problem that people have. You say, what does it mean to say you shall not judge? Now, there are two problems that come with it. There's a twin problem. The judgment is a necessity and at the same time a great danger. And we've got to hold both these together. It's a necessity because Jesus himself teaches we are to make judgments. Look at verse 6, for example. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. Now, do you try and do that without making any judgments? Fairly harsh judgments, I would say. I'm not going to teach you. You're a dog. You know, there you go. I won't give you anything. I won't say that to you because you're in the front row. Blessed and holy are you. <laughs> Made it to the front row. Just that I marked the date down, actually. There are four in the front row. You can't see how embarrassed they look. <laughs> but, you see, I won't teach that mob up there. They're the dogs. How can I do that without making a judgment? And Jesus is saying that we're not to do this. We're not to throw pearls to pigs. Or look down in verse 15. Watch out for false prophets. How do you do that without making a judgment as to who are the true prophets as opposed to who are the false prophets? See, the very chapter in which Jesus starts off, do not judge, 
is a chapter in which Jesus challenges us to make judgments. The whole chapter is about the making of judgments. And so there is a necessity of it, which of course is the necessity just of life itself, isn't it? We go through life, not just being the products of the last book we've read, I hope, but presumably we weigh up what we're taught, weigh up what we read, weigh up what other people say and think, and evaluate it and make judgments and discern the good from the bad and throw away the bad and cleave to that which is good. I mean, making judgments is the necessity of growing into maturity and adulthood just in, in humanity, let alone in spiritual maturity. So there is a necessity about making judgments, but there's a real danger also. And the real danger lies in a judgmentalism that flows out of Phariseeism, isn't it? A real, real danger in becoming judgmental, condemnatory, in, in rejoicing in other people's failures, in looking for people to fail, looking for faults and flaws in other people so that we can be self-satisfied about our superiority. At least I've never done that. It's a marvellous line, isn't it? It gives you a sense that you're better than they and you are glad to see that they are so rotten and so corrupt because you have never gone that way. Basically because of lack of opportunity, of course, but you can feel better about it. And so there's this desire to judge and condemn and find fault. Now here's the problem you see the Christians have. On one hand, you cannot condone wrongdoing but on the other hand, you've got to be avoiding being condemnatory. <coughs> Churches have the problems, you see. What do you do with a church elder who runs away with a fellowship leader, leaving his own wife and children behind and sets up home? You say, okay, I'm sorry if that's happened in your church recently. Sorry for two reasons. One, because I'm sorry it's happened. And two, because I'm sorry because now it sounds like I know about it when I don't. Right? Just picking on that. John, John Chapman actually was... Uh, uh, speaking in America, in a church in America. He didn't know anybody else. He had just arrived. And he says, now what happens if the church organist resigns in protest? The week before the church organist had just resigned in protest. Very hard for people not to believe that you're worded up on that kind of thing. And well, I don't know about your church uh, elder running away with your fellowship leader, but just take that as an example. What are you supposed to do? If you say, well, it's all right, he can stay an elder, she can remain a fellowship leader, it really doesn't matter. What you're saying is adultery failure to keep your promise, faithlessness, they don't matter. Well, the church can't say that, can it? You can't say that obeying God's word is a matter of indifference. So, what do you do? You take some action. You say, well, he's got to cease being a church elder. She can no longer be a fellowship leader. In fact, their membership will be held in question and you enter into a program of, of church discipline. But the end result of that, of course, is, all right, you've done it on that issue, but what do you do about the fact that the other church elder is making dishonest gain in, in lending out his money on, on really covetous and greedy forms of, uh, of interest. You're going to say running away with a fellowship leader is worse than being greedy? The Bible doesn't say it's worse than being greedy, so how are you going to draw that distinction? And so once you move into church discipline, you start to move into disciplines on any kinds of laws and the churches that have strong discipline practices start saying, well now, you were seen last Sunday playing football with your son in the park on the Lord's Day. You must resign from here. You mustn't do that, you see. And so you can start now looking for each other to see where it is that we don't match up so as to be able to kick each other out. See the problems? How do you strike the balance between not condoning wrongdoing and yet at the same time not being condemnatory, not being looking for faults in people? How do you hold those two things in balance? And the chapter starts off on that subject in saying, 
how to judge. It's not saying don't judge. I know that's the opening two words, but it's not saying that. It's saying don't judge or you too will be judged because it's all one sentence. The judgment, the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. And with the same measure that you give, you will receive. You will be measured. He's saying he's teaching you how to judge. Not in the spirit of condemnation, not in the Pharisaic desire to fail. What do you think is going to happen in the next few weeks, by the way? I mean, I know you have exams, but are you going to face exams where the lecturers are keen and eager to see you fail? Well, that's possible, isn't it? (laughs) But that's not the process, is it? It's supposed to be a process of evaluation. Supposed to be, isn't it? In fact, they may say, we'll let only the standard deviation drop off the list. But there are some lecturers actually want everybody in their class to pass because they're not here really to turf people out, they're here to educate people and they want people to demonstrate that they really have met the standard of education. They want people to pass. Now that's not wrong to have that judgement. It is a judgement. But it's radically different with a spirit where you say, I want to get rid of this class. I'm going to fail everybody except the top two. There is a spirit of desiring. Now, it's, it's the ungenerous spirit in judgment that is being attacked in this passage. Even when we make our judgments, we must do it generously. That is the connection between verse 2 and 1. The idea is this, that the judgment with which you judge others is the judgment that you, with which you will be judged. Now, how do you want to be judged? Generously, don't you? Well then, how do you judge others? You see, if you say, that man shouldn't do that because that's wrong, well then, you can't go and do it, can you? If it's wrong for him, it's wrong for you, isn't it? So the standard by which you are going to judge other people is the standard with which you are going to be judged. I'm told ancient Chinese proverb that he who points the finger at somebody else points three fingers back at himself. Great truth in that one. I taught it to my children, and so in our family, whenever they point the finger these days, they say, He did it! (laughs) (laughs) Overcome that problem. There's a great truth in it, though. As you point the finger, as you make the judgment, you are placing yourself under exactly the same judgment. So the way you want to be judged is the way to judge others. And I know the way I want to be judged generously. Therefore, how am I to judge others? Generously. Not looking for the faults so as to put them down. That is not the way. That's illustrated by Jesus' very humorous thing in this, in this, uh, in verses 2 to 5 of the speck and the log. So don't go around trying to find specks in people's eyes when you've got a whole telegraph post hanging out of your own. The plank idea is it has that humorous connotation like a telegraph post hanging out of your own. It's a ridiculous idea, you see. But yet, there is the ungenerous, there is the stingy, judgmental, condemnatory attitude that people have. So that the other person has to be perfect in every detail while we tolerate enormous failures in our own lives. The way we judge our others is the way we are going to be judged. So the way in which we want to be judged is the way in which we should judge others. It's all summarised in verse 12, another very famous, oft-quoted verse of Jesus, which most people ignore the context of totally. It's called the golden rule. As you want others to do unto you, 
so do unto them. For that really captures what the law is about, the law and the prophets. And in saying it sums up the law and the prophets, he's not saying it says everything that the law and the prophets ever says, because it doesn't even refer to God, for example. But in terms of the ethics, in terms of what the law is about, if you follow this principle, you will always be doing the right thing. As you want others to do good to you, so you are to do it to them. So what's the principle he's talking about? It's the principle of generosity. Not, of course, stupidity. Because you do not give to dogs what is sacred. You don't throw pearls in front of pigs so they can trample them under food. So it's not a matter of stupidity that you're engaged in. You're not to be just naive. Don't be over-hasty and naive in, in all your assessments. Be, be, make your assessments by all means, but do so on the basis of truth as well as generosity. And it's important that people perceive it, that, it, that that is what you're doing. Because Christians have a tendency to be naive on these things and to take too seriously everybody's uh, arguments and positions of life and not to, to see things for what they are because we're naive. You see, what do you do to the alcoholic who asks you for money that he might go and drink more? What is the kind thing to do? What is the generous thing to do? It's not to give him more money. That's not the kind and generous. The kind and generous thing to do is to, is, to, is to provide a meal for him, isn't it? Is to help him find accommodation for the night. Maybe give him a clean, clean set of clothes or something like that, but not to put him in a position where he's going to drink more and do more damage to himself. That can't be the kind thing, but it's the easy thing to do because it gets rid of them. And you feel stingy saying no, don't you? But it's not really for their good that you're doing it. You're doing it so as to get them off your back, to get the embarrassment over. You don't have alcoholics come and ask you money? Well, become a clergyman. There are many situations like that, you see, where you actually have to use discernment. You have to say, what is the best for them? And what is the best for them? How would I like to be treated in their position? And how would I like to be treated in their position may actually be harsh in your response then to saying you see, how are you supposed to treat a newcomer that you meet? When you Do you meet them? Do you assume they're a Christian or do you assume they're not a Christian? In our community, the statements used to be that the charitable assumption is you assume they're a Christian and treat them like that but that's not how I want to be treated I always want people to assume I'm not a Christian until I show them that I am that's, that's very clear and obvious isn't it? Because you see, if they think I'm a Christian they won't preach the gospel to me, will they? I say, oh, he knows all about that, and I may not know about it. They may merely be heading on my way to hell, ignorant of the gospel. Whereas if they assume I'm not a Christian, what do they do? They keep mentioning the gospel to me and explaining to me, lend me books, tapes, giving me the explanations of what it's about, so that I will be saved. Well, how do you want to be treated? I want to be treated as if I'm not a Christian until I demonstrate to the person that I am. I don't want them to assume that I am. Now, if that's how I want to be treated, then that's how I treat other people. I always assume that whoever I meet is not a Christian. I mean, whether they're clergymen or not, whether they come from clergy families or not, whoever they are, doesn't matter to me. I always assume they're not a Christian because that means I'm motivated to preach the gospel to them. If they are a Christian, it won't hurt them. If they're not a Christian, it'll save them, possibly. So, there is the kind thing to do. You see the discernment? It's not just going to turn into a, a wimpish sentimentality now. It means that you're not going to give to this one and you're not going to... Let me take the scripture classes. Most of you have endured high school scripture classes, haven't you? They're dreadful things. 
you think they're dreadful, you should teach them for a while and see what they're like on the other end of the spectrum. Because I've been down that end too. I used to teach in many places. One of them was Balgala High. Uh, boy, how many Valley High boys have we got? One. We had one yesterday. It's fascinating that people can get through a high school like that and arrive at university. <laughs> All to your credit. All to your credit. It's very interesting. I used to teach assembly full. 300 or so boys in the... Uh, in the assembly scripture for 40 minutes. There's many funny stories of what happened in those circumstances. But generally it was, it, was a, it was a game that they were playing and they used to ask us hard and difficult questions like where did Cain get his wife and what happened to the floodwaters after the flood and so on. And very deep theological questions. Now, they basically were in the pigs and dogs category. You can be seen by their manners apart from other things. But... Do you think that the child who asks me that question is interested in the slightest where the flood water has gone? Or could give a fig leaf where Cain got his wife from? They're not concerned in the slightest, are they? What are they trying to do? They're trying to make fun of the teacher. They're trying to make scripture lessons more enjoyable. They're trying to demonstrate how smart they are. They're trying to make fun of Christianity. They're trying to show themselves as being tough. They're trying to test out whether you've got a sense of humour. The trouble is with us, you see, because we're committed to the doctrines of the scriptures, because we are trying to persuade people with the truth of the word of God, we take it all very seriously. We do not see that in that situation they're not asking a real question, they're just having fun. And so we burst forth with long explanations of how the flood could or could not have done what it did or didn't do and, and all the rest of it. Of course, what that just shows is that we're complete and utter fools, doesn't it? It gives everybody a great deal of merriment and of course it just produces a hundred more difficult questions. So what is the answer? I'll tell you where Cain got his wife from if you can tell me whether Adam had a navel. That's the answer. Now the poor child who's on his feet is completely baffled by that. He doesn't, he's never thought of the question. He can't understand it. Some of you can't at the moment, can you? <laughs> Adam had a navel. Well, of course he had a navel. Well, you just ponder for a while on that one. And when it comes to you, halfway down Bachelor Steps later, you'll say, oh! <laughs> but of course, some of the others in the group are already smart enough to start laughing. So he, know not, he doesn't know what they're laughing at, but he knows that it's at him. So that he is then embarrassed like he wanted you to be embarrassed. Right, or where the floodwaters go, simple, someone pulled the plug, where else would they have gone? So what is it showing? It is showing that you've got a sense of humour, that you don't care, right? that you know, you see when a question is being just made, a pig question, a dog question, and you treat it appropriately and throw the rubbish and garbage that you normally throw to pigs and dogs. It's only when you're willing to, able to do that that you can actually communicate with a scripture class if anyone could ever communicate with Bally High boys. But there is, you see, discernment, isn't it? There is judgment that you must make. And it's not harsh and it's not cruel judgment. It is just perceiving the situation properly that you need to do. And just because Christians are to be kind to people doesn't mean they're to be sentimental, naive, stupid fools. That's not what you're being asked to do. You are asked to make judgments, real judgments. It's important to make those judgments. You say, yes, but Philip, what happened to the little boy who really did want to know where the flood waters went? Who really did want to know how Cain could find a wife, etc.? Well, Jesus says, don't worry, you know God, don't you? If someone is asking, they'll find. If someone's seeking, they'll, asking, they'll get the answer. If someone's seeking, they'll find. If someone's knocking, the door will be open to them. 
trust in God in these matters. God knows how to give good gifts to his children. I mean, you who are sinful fathers know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more God will give to those who earnestly, genuinely, sincerely are seeking to find? No, no, God will provide. All you've got to do is to treat people as you want them to treat you. See the line of the argument that flows down through this passage? It's all about the judgments in our relationships with people. How we're not to be picking specks when we've got logs in our eyes, which is condemnatory, and on the other hand, we're not so, so foolish as to take the family jewels and present them into the pig trough. We're not to be like that either. But rather to treat people as we wish to be treated, knowing that God is the one who will provide what they need. And then he gives a much more fundamental judgment. The judgment of life itself. He says there's only two ways to live. It's a nice phrase, two ways to live. We could use it in a little booklet sometime. There's a narrow and small gate that leads to life, or there's a broad gate and a broad way that is easy in comparison to the narrow and hard way, the way of restriction and difficulty, that leads to destruction. And many, of course, are on the broad way, and only a few find the gate and life to the gate to life and the narrow road. I desperately want Christianity to be popular. I want the whole of Australia to be converted. I would love the world to acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour. I want it to be the main force in the universe today. And I guess all believers have that kind of desire in their heart that it be like that. We desire it for good reasons, like we want Jesus to be honoured. We also desire it for bad reasons. That is, we hate being in the minority. We'd love to be in the, in the majority somewhere along the line. You know, it'd be comforting to know that most modern, intelligent, educated people believe what you believe rather than believe what you don't believe, as we're keeping on being told. Remember, being in the majority or being in the minority is a complete and utter irrelevance to truth and life, isn't it? I mean, at one stage, Copernicus was in the minority. Didn't mean that he was wrong, it just meant that he was the only bloke who worked out that the world was not the centre with the sun running around it, but the other way around. Believe, around his time, of course, he was in the minority believing the world was round as opposed to being flat. I mean, to be in the minority is a very good thing if it's true. It's hopeless if it's false. Truth and false got nothing to do with majority or minority opinion, although you read journal articles today, there is this consensus of modern scholarship is, which means I'm too lazy to think. Now, there's only two ways to live, and the way of Christianity is going to be, says Jesus, the minority way. So much as you may long and love for the day when the great revival breaks out and everybody acknowledges Jesus, you've got no assurance it's going to be like that. In fact, if anything, you've got the indication it won't be like that. It will be a minority who find life. The majority will find destruction. That's what Jesus says. And so if we really want Jesus honoured, we want his words honoured which means we want to live by that with that expectation and not look to be in the majority. It's harsh that, isn't it? But notice really what he's saying is the difference in destinations. One leads to destruction, to wholesale ruin, the other to life. Radically different destinations. But they're different destinations. They're not different just in their... Uh, the difference, sorry, in their destination comes from the beginning. That is, now I am confronted with the two ways to live. One hard, one easy. One narrow, one broad. One unpopular, one very popular. Now I make that decision. But the decision I make now 
winds up with totally different destinations. You don't make the choice of heaven and hell when you come at the last minute to it. You make that in life, earlier on. And that just inevitably works itself out. It's important to grasp that because, you see, many people want to just push off the decision. It's also important to grasp that it is the unpopular way. Very important to grasp it because it's so easy to go the way that the rest of the world goes. It's so hard to go by the narrow road. I mentioned yesterday one of, my, one of our friends seeking to be an actress. Quite a good actress, been uh, uh, given, a, she's still a schoolgirl, last year or so at school, facing uh, the HSC right at this moment, I guess. But uh, she's already been picked up by uh, a television company to produce a pilot for a new TV series, which they're uh, considering, although they're most likely not going to follow it through. But she's a highly talented, gifted, able girl who got the opportunity of a bigger, better part in a whole new TV production that was coming up. The only trouble was that it involved the part down the track, not just even in the pilot show, but down the track, the particular part, the leading girl, would be appearing topless from time to time. So, being a Christian, she decided not to follow that course. So she didn't try out for the main part. She accepted a, a lesser part for the show, one which was very much harder for a girl her age to play and many more competition for. And one of her school friends, who's not uh, in the same category of talents, etc., got the main part. It, was, it would have been hers, for sure. Because it was a choice she makes on a moral ground, isn't it? Another one of our friends who's doing the HSC, her school was teaching a play which when she started to read she found too immoral and decadent to read and she didn't want to but the school says well you've got to study that that's for the HSC and she says I don't want to do that I don't want to read it so she had to go out and find another play on the syllabus and read up a different play and train herself and, and study that on her own account because she made a, a moral choice about the literature she wanted to read in a country which is supposed to have freedom of choice in what you read but which prescribes that 18-year-olds have to read degenerate literature. You see, here's a choice she made, but it's a hard choice. You can imagine how many of the kids in the class understood or agreed with it. You can understand the ridicule and the laughter and the teasing, can't you? See, the narrow way is a hard road that leads to eternal life. That's the character of it. But the end point, well, you know the end point, because which are the people you admire and respect in the end? Even the pagans will admire and respect, won't they? It's those who have got the backbone to make such choices. Not those who wallow in the grog outside on the free, free uh, binge yesterday. Any twit can guzzle. Jesus goes on in judging about the prophets. He says, you take care about prophets. Make sure you judge them rightly. Because there are true prophets and there are false prophets. Prophets are people who speak the word of God or claim to speak the word of God. Not their own message, but God's message. The trouble is there are true prophets and there are false prophets. So you must judge which a prophet is when he comes saying, thus says the Lord, you need to say, well, is he? Look at the character of the false prophets. They're ferocious wolves. They actually come to devour people, to take people, to use people and their money and their life and their energies for themselves. They're ferocious wolves. They come to eat. They're not like shepherds who come to care for you. They come to rip you off been very sad and interesting to see the orange people coming unstuck in the last few weeks, isn't it? 
with that man, that, that mystic who's no longer interested in material welfare, only has 94 Rolls Royces that he has ripped off the people. And his, and his missus, who is, uh, who is a mistress, has run off to, to uh, Germany with, a, with how much money we do not know and has now been charged with attempted murder, amongst other things, while the man flees the country to try and get away with some more of the wealth that he's ripped off people and all the lies that he put out, etc. It's interesting to see Jim Jones, of course, and what happened with that false prophet as he took his community down into, in South America and saw a suicide of all, nearly all of them. He was, of course, a very close friend in his early days with another man called Moses David, who was the founder of the Children of God, Family of Life, etc., 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 about 90 or 100 names they've got. You see, where the, Moses David lives in, in opulence and wealth, while the people who are caught up in his sect all over the world, even here in Sydney, have to live in abject poverty and sell themselves and sell their bodies, and especially the, the girls who are all involved just in prostitution, for the sake of Moses David, who's living in great wealth. You see, here are people who speak in the name of God or gods, but they are totally false prophets and they are ferocious wolves just devouring people and their money and their energies and their lives. Jesus says, beware it, beware of them. Judge them for what they are, see them for what they are. And notice what else they are in their character, they're liars. They come in sheep's clothing. Christians are very naive at this point. You expect a false wolf to turn up and say, I am a false prophet. Listen to me. They never do. At least I've never heard one that does. He doesn't last long in the business if he does. He always comes and says, I am the true prophet. Naturally, that's, that's, that's what he's required, isn't it? And then speaks falsehood. But to say he's a true prophet, he'll need all the right regalia, won't he? He'll have to have gone to the right prophet school, got the right kind of degrees, wear the right kind of clothes, got an authorization from the right kinds of people, so that when he comes amongst you, he will be able to sell himself properly. When the children of God first arrived, they went around to all the Christian churches in Sydney and got backing from several of them, who later then had to disown them. The Scripture Union, for example, backed them for a few weeks until they worked out what they were on about and found out they were false and phony, then put out a letter telling, warning people. But for a few weeks they were going around saying, Scripture Union support us. Now, I'm not blaming Scripture Union for that. It's very hard to work out what new groups are about, etc. But I'm saying, notice what they wanted to do. They didn't believe what Scripture Union believes. They knew they didn't believe what Scripture Union believes. But if they could come in on the Scripture Union banner, well then they could get amongst the sheep, couldn't they? So the first thing they did when they landed in Australia was go to the Scripture Union people and say, yes, we believe exactly what you believe. We've been sent over by American Scripture Union. Here, why don't you tell people what good folks we are so that you can come in first-class sheep's clothing. Now, false prophets always have to have better merino than true prophets. True prophets can turn up in goat's hair. It's all right because they're speaking the truth. But false prophets always turn up in the finest merino. They have the best degrees, the best qualifications, the greatest numbers of churches, the, the, the greatest success in conversion rates, the, the greatest degree of sincerity in their eyes, the biggest and best miracles, and all the things going for them. That's the character of them. In fact, when you meet someone who's got it all together, be suspicious. Ragged, tagged men, they've got a chance of being true. So what have you got to do? You've got to judge them. Now, how do you judge them? Well, you judge them by their fruit. That's how you judge them. Well, what's the fruit of the prophet? The fruit of the prophet is his prophecy. A funny thing that, most Christians judge prophets by everything except for what they teach. Everything except by what they prophesy. But you mustn't judge by anything other than their prophecies and the lives that back that prophecy up. 
that they are seeking obedience and godliness. False prophets, because of their false teaching, will in the end divide the congregation and destroy the faith of the ungodly and will themselves, you will find, when you get to know them well and thoroughly, not live in godliness. That's what will be the end result. But you'll have to hang around with them a long time to find that out. You have to see it in their private life, not in their their public appearance. Their public appearance will always be impeccable. That's the character putting on the false clothing. And so we've got to be wary of the sheep's clothing that false prophets dress up in. Titles, degrees, looks. They're always handsome and good-looking. It's extraordinary, really. Something strange about their eyes. The uh, one because he's on so many uppers and downers. The, the, the miracles, the success rate. Be wary. See, false prophets can work miracles. So when you hear a man doing great miracles, don't believe him. Because that's no sign that he's speaking the truth. That's just a sign he can do great miracles. That's all it's a sign. Look at the, what Jesus says in the final judgment section down there in verses 21 to 23. Many will come to me on that day. And they'll say in verse 22, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name? Do mighty miracles in your name? You see, the false prophets, because notice what Jesus says to them in what is really must rate as one of the most awful verses in the whole Bible, verse 23. Jesus says, I will say to them, depart from me. I never knew you, you evildoers. Isn't that shocking, eh? Spend all your lifetime preaching and working miracles, exorcisms, all in the name of Jesus. And when you front up on the last day, Jesus says, get lost, I've never heard of you. And that'd be an awful thing. And that's what it says about false prophets. They can do exorcisms. They can do miracles. And yet be false. So how do you judge them? Well, the two elements of it. One is by their prophecy. You don't expect to find oranges on an apple tree, so why do you expect to find anything but prophecy on the lips of prophets? By their prophecy. In 1 Corinthians 14.29, 1 Corinthians 14.29, Paul says, let two or three prophesy and let the rest listen with discernment. Or as it is in the NIV, let the others weigh what is said. Don't just believe a prophet. Weigh up what they say. And so does that fit in with the rest of prophecy? Does that fit in with what we know about God? Does that fit in with the gospel of Jesus? If it doesn't, then scrap it. Doesn't matter how handsome the person is, doesn't matter whether they've got great robes on, doesn't matter if they're reverend, very reverend, most reverend, venerable, or whatever it is, right, reverend, or the lot. Doesn't matter what they are, it's a question of what they say. And secondly, those who do the will of my Father, in verse 21. Those who do the will of my Father, and friends, you see, Jesus has already attacked us and told us all this in verses in chapter 5 and the first half of chapter 6, isn't he? Don't do your religious righteousness so that people can see. That's what the false prophets do. Long prayers, deep devotional prayers, sitting in your lotus position for two hours. He must be holy. He must be godly. Rubbish. He must have a backache. It's got nothing to do with his godliness. It's a question of whether they live righteously. That's the question. It's whether they do what the law of God says in fact in private. You'll only know that over time, won't you? So wandering prophets, people that never allow you close enough to see who they are and what they're about and what their lives are, be very wary of them. Don't underestimate the importance of your local minister. He lives with his people. You might see his faults, but at least you're close enough to see what he is like. 
And you can know the truth of what he lives by, by what he, how he lives. Which in the long run, though he doesn't demonstrate it all the time, becomes transparent for all, doesn't it? Be wary of the passing through gurus whom you can never get close enough to evaluate anything except their teaching. And if you actually stop and listen to their teaching, you'll realise it's got nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ, with the revelation of God on Mount Sinai to Moses, or any part of the scriptures. So, that last verse, verse 23, is a terrible judgment for us, isn't it? Terrible challenge to our judgments about others. Terrible challenge, of course, to our own lives and our own assurance of salvation. We've got to look back to ourselves then, haven't we? And say, all right, am I just running around calling out the name of Jesus, wearing my fish badge and all the rest of it? Or am I for real seeking to do the will of God? And then we have introduced that incredible idea that we are not the judges in the end, Jesus is. And it's spelled out for us in the two builders, verses 24 to 27, the wise man and the foolish man who build upon the rock and the sand uh, respectively a very famous parable for which we've got lovely Sunday school choruses to sing haven't we the two builders they choose differently from the beginning and the outcome is inevitable that they have totally different destinations one in ruin and one standing firm and Jesus says notice what you build upon He who builds upon my words is like the wise man. He who does not build upon my words is like the fool. As the chorus picks it up, it's the same as saying, so make sure that you build your life on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the uh, wise man builds upon the rock. If you don't know the chorus, you must go to Beach Mission and help you. They still sing that in Beach Mission? No. Would you like me to sing it now? Well, you can't have it. We're running out of time. So you've got to build on Jesus, which is the same as to build on his words. But notice what these two have in common and what they have different. In verse 24 and 26, quickly look there. See what they have in common, see what they have different. 24 and 26. They have in common that they both hear the words of Jesus, haven't they? What they have different is that one obeys them and the other doesn't. The difference is not that only one hears, the difference is that only one obeys. See the difference? It's what you build your life on will determine your final outcome. It's not just being a hearer of the word of God, as James 1.22 puts it, but a doer of the word of God. God's word is not just to be heard for intellectual titillation, for the, for the scratching of your itchy ears, to give you something to do during lunchtime to avoid the boredom of walking around the campus again. It's got to do with what you're going to obey, what you're going to put into practice. That is what the wise men. And so we see here again the arrogant humility of Jesus. Staggering, isn't it? Who does this man think he is? The crowds were amazed at his teaching because he doesn't use any footnotes. Not an undergraduate. He doesn't keep saying, refer to this rabbi, rabbi so-and-so says this, rabbi... He just says the truth. And as you hear the truth, you say, I know that's true. It's inevitably true. It's absolutely right. You can hear it verse after verse. But in the process, he says, that's outlandish things. He says, on the last day of judgment, when you turn up and, and I'm there, I'll say to you, get lost, I never knew you. Who does he think he is? That on the day of judgment it matters that you've got to answer to him. 
He thinks he's the judge of the universe, the judge of the living and the dead. Now, who's the judge of the living and dead? God's the judge of the living and dead. Who does this bloke think he is? He doesn't go around saying, I am God, I am God, I am God. Doesn't do that, does he? He just talks as if he is God. Just as on the judgment day, when you front up to my judgment seat, I'll tell you where you can get lost. He just acts as if he's God all the time. And they say, well, what authority? I know what he's saying is right, but on the other hand, what on earth is he saying? I mean, how could you say such a thing? But he just did. He wouldn't, but he has. He couldn't, but he did. The arrogant authority of Jesus. If you listen to what I'm saying and do what I'm saying, then you'll be a wise person. It's incredible, isn't it, as a piece of arrogance? But he's just said that. He said it so nicely you didn't notice. He's so humble. And you say, yeah, that, that's right. If you build on the word of God, if you build on your words, if, you build, if, if I build my life on you, I'm going to heaven. Whereas if I ignore what you're saying, I'm going to hell. You are fairly important then, aren't you? <laughs> and I can get the general drift, can't I? And here is the problem with your judgment. You must consider your verdict about Jesus very carefully. Because if Jesus is who Jesus claims to be, then your verdict on Jesus is nothing compared to his verdict on you. Because you are not the judge. He is. And there can be no greater folly in this world than to try and sit in judgment on your judge. Because the way in which you treat him is the way in which your eternity will be resolved. Enter by the narrow gate. Build upon the words of Jesus. And so you come to Bible study each week. And blessed and praised be for you. I'm glad for you that you come to Bible study. And I hope that you'll keep coming next year. And I'm sorry for those of you who are doing such a silly thing as passing your exam so that you leave campus Bible study. Best thing at university. But... Happy in you, I'm glad you've come, and it's great that you're here, and I hope that you'll keep studying the scriptures over the summer and all the rest of it. But friends, don't bother. Don't bother. Don't ever bother coming. It's a waste of your time, and mine doesn't matter. But it's a waste of your time and energy to come. In fact, you're doing yourself a disservice if you're going to come and hear the word of God and ignore what it says. You may as well not even bother hearing but what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount is really a frontal attack on everything we stand for, isn't it? it? just keeps on calling upon us in our righteousness, in our attitude to the word of God and the law, in our value system, in our priorities, in our attitude to materialism and wealth and where we're going. It says, hey, don't go that way, go this way. Well, we've been through it over the last few weeks. Are you going to be the wise man or the foolish one? The end of one is destruction. The end of the other is life. Let's pray. We pray, Heavenly Father, for these coming examinations and judgments that we are about to pass through, that all might be done in justice and equity and fairness, that those who set the papers and those who, who sit for them might represent their work fairly and faithfully, and that righteousness might be done and seen to be done through this judgment process. But, Father, we pray today, especially for the more fundamental judgments of life, our judgment of the worth of the, the, the truth of your word and your son and your judgment of our lives 
We do pray, Father, that you would help us each one to face up to the truth and to live by it in, in, in integrity so that we might indeed come to the position of standing before you forgiven and pardoned by the death of your Son. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the talks on philipjensen.com. Please check our copyright page before recording or reproducing any material on philipjensen.com.